Hello and welcome to the Amateur Austenite. My name is Frances Duncan. I'm an author and the founder of the Jane Austen Society of New Zealand. My co-host is my friend Shan. Good afternoon. And today we're discussing Chapter 23 of Persuasion by Jane Austen. Chapter 23 is the penultimate chapter. Anne goes to visit the Musgroves. It's been raining, so not everyone is there. In Mary and Henrietta's absence, she goes to talk to Captain Harville, who shows her a picture of Captain Bennock, which he's getting framed for Louisa, talks about his sister and woman's inconstancy. Captain Wentworth overhears them, writes Anne a letter saying, I still love you. I've never stopped loving you. He then leaves the room and reads the letter, freaks out, is in a room full of people that she can't get out of, that she eventually gets out of, and then runs into him in the street. They go for a walk together and they talk over the past. And unlike the movie, they don't kiss on the street. They don't kiss on the street. And then it's the evening party in Camden Place. I really like all these chapters, actually. Good. I say that. Good. But there's a lot of what I would consider almost philosophical content in this, which takes it beyond this is just a nice story or a novel, but into the, are these Jane's thoughts? Thoughts. I have several notes on that, actually. There's some very forward feminist thinking things in here Mm. that I wondered whether they were Jane Austen's thoughts. Because it's not specifically to the story or, well, I mean, it does add to the story, adds to the depth of the characters, but I think it's it's more than that. I think it is actually revealing part of her nature and her attitudes to life and her concerns. Men have had every advantage of us in telling their own story. My note is that, is this Jane Austen talking? Absolutely. They write the books. Education has been theirs in so much higher degree. The pen has been in their hands. This is a very feminist thing to be saying, or potentially quite controversial for the time. Not really, because there had been a lot going through. I mean, we'd had Mary Wollstonecraft and a few others, but actually since being lost, I think. Ironically, bearing in mind Victoria was such a sort of a powerful queen, but sort of post that, they shoved women back into their place, didn't they? So there was that reactionary and I think she was on that edge of being very much an out-there woman, a career woman, if given the opportunity. Because what other choice? They had no choices. Yes, it wasn't really accepted for women to have a career. There was something wrong with you if you wanted to work. The other thing that I wondered about, whether it was pulled directly from Jane Austen's life, when she's talking about the privilege I claim for my own sex is that of loving longest when existence or when hope is gone. Mm. I wonder if she's talking about her sister Cassandra. Because, of course, Cassandra was engaged to Tom Fowl, who went overseas, got sick and died, and they never married. And it was just decided that she would never marry. She remained constant to him her Mm. whole life. But again, of course, it's easy for us to overlook how many young men were killed during that period. So there would not have been the young men, eligible young men in their areas because they'd all been killed off through the Napoleonic Wars. This is very true. And although Jane and Cassandra were single women, they weren't terribly eligible because they came with no fortune. Mm, No dowry at all. Their one claim to fame, I'd say, is that their mother comes from nobility. They had relations, their adopted brother and things like that. And even, mind you, the French aristocracy was sort of... Her cousin was sort of looked upon as being a little bit dubious, wasn't she? (laughs) Eliza, she was great. I think so too. I actually read a theory that Eliza wrote Jane Austen's novels that Jane never wrote them. (laughs) 
No, I think that's most unlikely. I agree, it's most unlikely. The reason being because I think these are two English. Eliza was a French woman and I don't believe she would have written like this. Oh, she did spend most of her life in England, though. Like, she was born in... No, wait, was she born in India? No, she was born in India, wasn't she? Mm. And then she spent most of her life in England, but then she did go to France and marry in France. And then come back to England. I think that people have great difficulty thinking that Jane Austen, a normal, perfectly boring woman, could write such exciting novels. Well, what was boring about her? Well, I mean, I don't think she's boring, but she's not like Eliza. Eliza was fascinating. But Eliza had opportunities that Jane didn't. It's so much about who you get the opportunity to meet and mix and mingle with, particularly in those days. And you were quite restricted in your social circle because you didn't move around very often. You didn't move around much. The logistics of moving, without a horse and a carriage and coachman and things like that, your ability to get anywhere was, was so so very limited. And of course, longer travel outside of the small area where you lived, you needed to have a male relation accompanying you. There for are, gentry. For gentry. And they were gentry. There are, there are several letters of Jane basically waiting for her brothers to pick her up. Yeah, constantly waiting. So they'd go and do a lot of visiting. But that's partly because you'd go for a long time. You wouldn't just go over for the weekend or anything because you wouldn't be able to come back until it suited them. You wouldn't be able to go there until it suited them or somebody to take them. Anyway, we have digressed. Shall we we carry on? The chapter opens with Anne again thinking about she should really go and visit Lady Russell, but she's not going to do it. (laughs) (laughs) She decided to defer her explanatory visit in Rivers Street. I think she's just avoiding it. I think so too. She doesn't want to make the explanation and she's all caught up in Captain Wentworth right now. Mr. Elliot has sort of faded into the background. She gets to the White Hart. Mary and Henrietta are out, and Mrs. Musgrove sits her down and says, you need to wait. There's just a reference here to the Sultaness Scheherazade's head. In the Arabian Nights, Scheherazade constantly delays her own execution by keeping the Sultan in suspense from night to night for the conclusion of her stories. That's right, but the actual book itself, the publication of this tales, 1001 Arabian Nights, was translated by an Englishman, and I'm fairly sure it was in the late 1700s. But it would have been a very popular book amongst the reading public. So within the last 20 years? I think so. She was deep in the happiness of such misery or the misery of such happiness instantly. So she's sitting there going, I, I don't know what's going on. Everything's great. Is it, is it great? Is it great? Captain Wentworth and Captain Harville are talking to each other. And then Captain Wentworth goes to write a letter. It's interesting because in the movies... He's always writing the letter when she walks in. He's always sitting at the window. Writing. Poor Anne can hear all the undesirable particulars (laughs) about Henrietta and Mr. Hayter's engagement of taste and delicacy which good Mrs. Musgrove could not give. She reminded me so much of Mrs. Bennet. Elizabeth sitting there with Darcy there, listening to her mother converse about all the wonderful things that happened because she got engaged and everything with the same lack of delicacy. But at least Mrs. Musgrove, there's that underlying kindness and concern, even if it's a little bit inappropriate. Mrs. Musgrove is talking to Mrs. Croft and they start talking about long engagements, uh, and which yes. they're not fans of. And Mrs. Croft says, or an uncertain engagement, an engagement which may be long like the one that Anne and Frederick almost went into. And they share a look 
one quick conscious look, they're thinking the same thing, that this could have been them. The phraseology, I think, is really so appropriate, and particularly when it refers back to the, the end of the chapter when Anne's talking about her perception of the decision, but she says, to begin without knowing that at such a time there will be the means of marrying, I hold that to be very safe and unwise, and what I think all parents should prevent as far as they can. And bearing in mind Anne considered Lady Russell to be loco parentis for a substitute mother. And at the end of the chapter, Anne does say that she thinks she did the right thing in following Lady Russell's advice. Mm. Even though she wasn't happy, she does think she did the right thing. And had she gone against her advice, she probably would have been even unhappier knowing that she'd gone against good advice. I suspect also that Frederick recognises he was premature in asking because he had nothing yet to give. When they turned and looked at each other, and his pen ceased to move. I've got a note that there's lots of looks in this chapter because they keep looking at each other and they keep referring to people's looks. It's quite funny. Segwaying into that, Anne is looking at Captain Harvel, unaware she's looking at him. She's just looking at him and <laughs> her thoughts drifting off into space. And then she comes to realising that he's going, come and talk to me. The unaffected, easy kindness of manner which denoted the feelings of an older acquaintance than he really was. Which I think is lovely, but also, why? He's only known her for a couple of days. They came to know each other at Lyme. But they only knew each other two days at Lyme. This is only the third day he's met her. But the difference is, of course, it was in a very stressful environment. So you tend to get to know and see people under those circumstances. And Anne very much rose to that occasion and took control, along with Captain Harvel. The two of them essentially were the only two who actually managed to sort of keep themselves under regulation. So I think you could argue that they developed that sort of, if you want a better word, brother-sister relationship almost. She uses that later in the chapter when he's in the evening party. She actually refers to him like a brother. So I think that's the thing, is the normal barriers of formality have dropped because they've had that relationship and adversity to deal with. They start talking about his poor sister. Poor Fanny, she would not have forgotten him so soon. Because, of course, he's got the picture of Captain Bennock that is getting framed for Louisa. Obviously painful. There's a little reference a little bit later with a faltering voice. He's obviously still very, very grieving the death of his sister. He's in a difficult position because Bennock is like his brother. He obviously loves him and wants him to be happy. And he obviously is growing to care for Louisa, probably, because of her having been sick in his home. But he is finding it difficult to be in that position. And they have this whole thing about who forgets first, men or women. And that men get to go out and do things. Women were more confined and at home in that period. Men got to go out. But Captain Harville points out that it does not apply to Bennock. The peace was declared. Mm. Peace was declared, so there he was. He was just sort of like, he was on half pay, staying with them, grieving. Man is more robust than woman, but he is not longer lived. What I found very interesting about that is this is still true, but women still live longer than men, even though our societies are drastically different. It is changing, the difference. The, age the gap that, in between? Yes. And also it depends too on, like a lot of women died in childbirth. So, in fact, the average age of women wasn't as high as you might like to think. But if you managed to survive all that, then you had a good chance of living a long time. I guess they really needed the men to die so they could give the estates to their sons, though. Well, yes. 
they were the ones that usually lasted longest though, of course, because they had all the care and they were well fed. I like that. It would be very hard indeed if women's feelings were added to this. Captain Harville uses a couple of naval terms. Yes. I'm in good anchorage here. No hurry for a signal at all. Which I assume Jane picked up from her brothers. I would say so. So they continue to talk about men versus women's constancy. And they talk about there are examples, but they couldn't bring them forth. Perhaps those very cases which strike us the most may be precisely which cannot be brought forward without betraying a confidence. I think Anne wants to talk about herself, but she can't. She can't, no. And you wonder for a second there if Captain Harvel knows about her and Captain Wentworth, but I'm convinced he would not have this conversation with her if he did. He does speak well, though, about the grief at parting from your wife and children and not knowing if you'll see them again, particularly when they're at war. I speak, you know, only of such men as have hearts. Yes, because he recognises they're not all... The marriages that they had could be comparable to modern marriages in some cases, but there were a lot of people that married when they barely knew each other or were marrying for money and didn't care for each other. It's lovely to get some real evidence of people who cared for their family. Captain Wentworth hastily folds up his letter and leaves with Captain Harvel, then comes back, pulls out the letter, and then looks at Anne with eyes of glowing entreaty. Ah, but what I picked up was the fact that he'd left his gloves behind, so he had an excuse to come back. And then we have the full text of his letter here, which is a beautiful thing to write when he's in such a hurry. Goodness, I wouldn't be able to do that. I couldn't even do it if I wasn't in a hurry. (laughs) You alone have brought me to Bath, for you alone I think and plan. Have you not seen this? And she has suspected, yes, that he was thinking of her. But didn't wish to raise her hopes too much. And then she has this overpowering happiness, but she can't express it. And she needs some quiet. (laughs) Then everybody returns and she cannot cope. And has to say, sorry, I'm not well. And basically beg to leave. Charles, in his real concern and good nature, would go home with her. There was no preventing him. She appreciates his kindness. He's a good brother-in-law to her. Yes, very infuriating, but all the same, he is a kind man. And I think that's one of the really nice things. The poor man doesn't really deserve to be left with Mary. (laughs) 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 He deserves better. No, he is a good man. And so she doesn't show her frustration. She only shows outwardly gratitude towards him. Yes. Then they're walking and Captain Wentworth catches up with them. And Charles is like, oh, great, you can walk Anne home and I can go look at this gun. Yes, he's that hunting madman. We don't get all of the conversation between Anne and Captain Wentworth. We get bits of it and we get a lot of it conveyed to us. They exchanged again those feelings and those promises which had once before seemed to secure everything but which had been followed by many, many years of division and estrangement. They were returned again into the past, more exquisitely happy perhaps in their reunion than when it had been first projected, more tender, more tried, more fixed in the knowledge of each other's character, truth and attachment. I'm not sure if it really warrants the eight and a half years that they were apart, but it does make you feel better in the future of their relationship, that they're happier now than they were when they were younger. 
Yes, because the chances, how much time would she have been able to spend with him? And and I think as well, when I think about it, they wouldn't, I mean, her life would have been hell, I think, if she'd got herself engaged. Just imagine living with her father. Or how would he have cast her out? Well, it did say that he wouldn't do anything for them. He didn't say, I disapprove, but he had said, I won't do anything, which means that she wouldn't have got her dowry. She wouldn't have got her dowry. She would not have got any support. They'd have been constantly at her for demeaning the Elliot name. So he comes to Bath thinking that potentially he has a chance with her, but then jealousy of Mr. Elliot makes him doubt himself. So they have this huge conversation covers their entire reunion relationship. We'll talk about Lyme, we'll talk about Mr. Elliot, we'll talk about Louisa and Captain Bennock. But you see, they are totally heedless of every group around them, seeing neither sauntering politicians, bustling housekeepers, flirting girls, nor nursery maids and children. So basically, they're oblivious to their surroundings. They're just walking on and on. So very reminiscent of Elizabeth and Darcy when they got together and they just went... Got lost. Got lost, as, <laughs> as Bingley said. You can go and get lost again today, if you like. But it's not until Lyme that he began to understand himself. He talks about having been angry after very, all this time. He's very, very honest. He was still angry after all this time, but he began to realise that he was angry because he hadn't forgotten her. Yes, he'd imagined himself indifferent, and he'd been unjust to her merits because he'd been a sufferer from them. That's, I thought, a really honest, you know. He couldn't recognise her good points because he was having to pay the price for them. I could never doubt that you would be loved and sought by others. Which is beautiful. And then he says, I know that you've turned down at least one proposal from someone that was better than me, and that was Charles. Mm. He said it kind of gave him hope, wondering Mm. if this was for him. They eventually get back to Anne's place, and she still doesn't tell anyone what's happened. She spends a lot of this chapter not telling people anything. Then they have the evening party where everyone's together. And she's not fond of evening parties, but this one seems to go great. <laughs> she had nothing to blush for in the public manners of her father and sister. She could avoid Mr. Elliot. She still doesn't have a chance to talk to Lady Russell because they're not in private. At the party, she and Captain Wentworth get to have a little talk. Because they have apparently occupied in admiring a fine display of greenhouse plants. <laughs> And he says, if I had come back two years after our failed engagement and said, I still love you, will you marry me, basically, would you have said yes? And she says yes. And he beats himself up over this. He's like, this is, it's my fault that we weren't together. I blamed you. I did not understand you. But he does now. And he says, I must learn to brook being happier than I deserve. I think it's wonderful that he takes the blame as well. What comes through here, he's a very human person. He has his faults. He's not tolerant of fools. We saw that earlier in the book. But he does try to, you know, manage it or work around it. But this is so honest. I was so hurt and angry that I wasn't able to do what I could have done. And I suffered myself from... Shot himself in the foot. Yes. They're talking about Lady Russell. Almost like, well, we may never choose to agree on that, but I love this... He looked at her, looked at Lady Russell, and looking again at her, replied as if in cool deliberation, 
Not yet, but there are hopes of her being forgiven in time. <laughs> I trust her being in charity with her soon. Once Lady Russell knows and approves of their current engagement. <laughs> I don't think she'll disapprove of it now. Far from it. She might. Well, of course, she will have been regretting Mr. Elliot, but of course that was before she realised what Mr. Elliot was like. So we have one chapter left and an awful lot happens in that chapter too. That's quite exciting, that one. Yeah. And that is our summary of chapter 23 of Persuasion by Jane Austen. My name is Frances Duncan. You can find me at francisduncanwrites.com and on Twitter at Francis underscore Duncan. Thank you for listening and we wish you happy reading. Just popping back in to let you guys know that we have merch now. I haven't actually got merch with my face on it. That seems a little weird to me, but if you really want it, let me know and I'll do that. There's merch of the Jane Austen Society of Aotearoa New Zealand's logo, uh, some Jane Austen merch, and some Pride and Prejudice Heavily Pride-focused merch too. It's on Redbubble and the link is in the notes. Happy buying!